0: Like, I like this question, how did I collaborate in my own defeat? Um,
1: (laughs) It's a powerful question.
0: Right? And so, like, even, it's not saying it's 50-50, it's not saying it's your fault. Maybe it was like 98% luck and you only brought 2%, which happened to be your attitude on that given day. But even if your attitude was positive, maybe the outcome wouldn't have changed. Mm -hmm. But in every interaction we have in life, we bring something into that moment. And so I think that question of how did I collaborate in my own defeat, how did I collaborate in my own success... Um, how do I collaborate in this conversation or situation? Um, it, what it does is even if it's not strictly mathematically true that, uh, it's all about your habits or it's all about luck, it raises the question or the awareness around what is within my control and what can I, uh, impact in this situation.
2: Bulletproof radio, a state of high performance.
1: You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that photography has completely changed how we look at our world. And it's easy to forget that, oh yeah, we didn't used to have a camera on our phones. But when you get into the very high level of microscopy and taking photos, you realize we've now learned what's going on inside cells, inside all these things. Uh, that you never would have imagined or been able to see. And there's a new technique from uh, someone who calls herself a microphotographer named Teresa Kugler. She combined fluorescence micro- microscopy and stereo micrography, if you can even say those words, to create a vivid portrait of a developing turtle embryo. Okay what the heck, how would you do that? It turns out it's this amazing glowing image, and you can see that on the daveasprey.com webpage, um, of a, a little turtle, and you can see in color which parts of it are doing what. And the embryo was only two and a half centimeters long, and you couldn't get it in just one image, so they stitched together hundreds of images focused on different locations and layers of the turtle. So you can see something that your eyes and no eyes on Earth could ever capture using technology. And they won... An award in 2019 for the Small World Micrography Competition. And it's incredible because that's 45 years that that competition has existed that you wouldn't know about. And when you look at, when you take that and you look at what's going on in your retina, look at what's going on in a neuron, we are just visually using incredible tools that you would never know were in the background to let you see the very essence of biology. And I'm completely astounded by uh, the changes in the world. And what does it have to do with today's show, you might be asking yourself? Well, number one, small things are worth your notice, things you might not see but that might actually really matter. And when I was doing my research for today's episode, I found out that today's guest is an accomplished photographer in normal scale, as well as a best-selling author who's really focused on profound changes that happen when you change very small things. In fact, even the art and science of changing the environment around you and inside of you so that you have control of your own biology, that's the definition of biohacking. And the very best biohacks are the small changes that make the biggest difference. So small tweaks, big outcomes. Can you guess what today's episode is gonna be about? Probably not, based on that. Then again, you probably clicked on this on iTunes. (laughs) so you know what we're going to talk about. So the surprise has been ruined already, but that's all right. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+ A seven day free trial. Today's guest is also a New York Times bestselling author, bestselling author of Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. And his work is grounded in just really meticulous research. And he's going to teach us today about how habits can help you fulfill your potential. And you've probably seen him mentioned in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, CBS this morning, uh, maybe uh, at a Fortune 500. Company. If you work there, so this is a guy who's gone out there and rung the bell for habits in a meaningful way, and almost a half a million people subscribe to his email newsletter and make it a habit to read it. James, you didn't even laugh at my joke there.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's good to talk to you.
1: I was just like queuing it up and handing it to you. So do you that make it a habit ball. to just? I totally st- do you just make it a habit to ignore good humor uh, on podcasts? Is that like <laughs> no? total whiff? You're all, no, actually, I don't make that a habit. It just wasn't good humor, uh, anyway. Uh, I got to understand why are you obsessed with the habits of human performance? If you care enough to write a book about something, you really, really care more a little bit. Why?
0: Yeah. That's it for anybody who's written a book, you realize how deep that question actually is. Um, depending on how you measure it, atomic habits took somewhere between three and five years uh, to write and yeah, any project that you commit that amount of time to man, it better be worth it. And so I think, you know, from my vantage point habits, there may be a dozen, uh, topics or so that are probably worth that amount of effort. Um, maybe a few more, but Uh, habits is certainly one of them. And one of the reasons I feel so strongly about that is that most of the results that you have in life are, can be viewed as a lagging measure of your habits. So your knowledge is a lagging measure of your reading and learning habits. Your physical fitness is a lagging measure of your eating and training habits. Even the clutter in your bedroom is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. You know, your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits You can apply that idea that the outcomes, the results that we also badly want in life or talk about achieving uh, are often downstream from the habits that precede them. And uh, certainly there are other factors that influence outcomes in life. Like, for example, decision making. Um, What habits do I work on or where do I live? What career do I build habits in? What industry am I in? Um, so certainly choices, uh, also are a big factor and also luck and randomness, you know, like luck and, and randomness and uncertainty impact our outcomes in life, but luck by definition is not within your control and your habits are. And I think one of the only reasonable approaches is to focus on what you can control. So given that your habits are upstream of your results and they so meaningfully impact the trajectory that you have in almost any major domain in life, Uh, I think that makes them worthy of investigation, worthy of understanding. And in my case, worthy of spending five years writing a book on it.
1: What's the difference between a habit that drove an outcome versus a decision? Like I decided to go to business school and I have a bigger paycheck. It doesn't seem like a habit, but it seems like a measurable change in outcome.
0: Yep, good question. So I kind of think of your decisions and your habits as sort of the two big pillars that are within your control that that influence your outcomes. So decisions, like you mentioned, sometimes they can be a one time decision, like going to business school or what career to to start out in, what job to take, what city to move to. Uh, the most extreme example is probably who you marry. Uh, that's a one time choice that impacts your happiness and habits. And so
1: some people make it a habit. It's almost always a bad one if you do it lots of times.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> many years down the line. So the there are single choices like that. Now, if we want to be very particular about the language, we could say, well, technically, every time you choose to do a habit, doing one push-up or meditating for one minute, that is a decision. And that that is somewhat true. But if we're just trying to like keep it fairly clean here, we could say, habits are repeated actions or maybe repeated decisions. Whereas, you know, those single one-time choices, um, are in a different category. So the way that I differentiate this, imagine you have two entrepreneurs and one entrepreneur decides to start a tech company, a software company, maybe it's an email marketing service or some kind of technology product. And then, uh, another person decides to be an entrepreneur and they're going to start a brick and mortar shop, like a local pizza parlor or something. Well, At that moment, when the decision is made, you can sort of imagine like a dotted line emanating out into the future. That would be like your trajectory. And most of us, I think, would imagine that the software company would have the more exponential potential curve, the more exponential future ahead of it. But your decisions determine your uh, the potential available to you. But your habits determine how far you walk along that line, how much you realize of that potential. And so it's possible you could start the local pizza parlor. If you have really killer habits, you could execute and have a great business. And somebody who has a great idea for a software company but has terrible habits isn't able to capitalize on it. So your your decisions create potential energy. Your habits capture that that potential energy.
1: As a, a kind of a funny example there, you could also, you know, found or become CEO of a computer security startup uh, or you could start a coffee company.
0: Hypothetically speaking.
1: And decide (laughs) which one of those has a better outcome. (laughs) Uh, I would say I I made the wrong choice if I was a rational person, uh, but I've done pretty well on the coffee side. (laughs) But that said, the habits that you choose uh, or that you, I don't know, instantiate, maybe is a better word, those better be in alignment with the type of decision you made about a career. So my habits, if I was a tech entrepreneur, still would be a different set of habits than the habits that I would build around being a coffee entrepreneur, right? Right. Or human performance entrepreneur, which is really what I am. Coffee is just one manifestation of it, but.
0: Yeah. I like to think about it as like, um, the collection of habits that you build, which is kind of what you're referencing here. I would Mm -hmm. have a different collection of habits if I was a human performance entrepreneur versus a tech entrepreneur versus whatever um those that collection of habits is sometimes we call it your daily routine i think we could call it your system and you your go. system needs to change based on the outcome that you want and i think we could even say like your current results in life you're are, um a natural byproduct of the system you have your your current results are perfectly your your current system is perfectly designed by definition to deliver your current results and so if you want the results to change you need the system to change you need that collection of daily habits to change
1: and i think there's an asterisk in there around luck you know i had the perfect system mm. and then an, you know a comet hit my backyard and i'm like oops <laughs> so For sure. i i kind of feel like there's some amount of, of social darwinism in what you're saying um, that maybe isn't isn't a
0: positive so thing so the way that i think about luck is there There are kind of two sides. The first is the, the common in the backyard point is sort of like bad luck, you know? So you need to do the best you can to reduce your exposure to harm. Yep. And the best way I know to do that is to have a margin of safety. So you start a business, the larger the emergency fund you have saved up, that's a margin of safety for customers not coming in or you picking the wrong business or not figuring it out slowly or building a great reputation. If you're well known and provide value to people, then that it provides a margin of safety for you slipping up and making a mistake or saying something stupid accidentally. Um, so the more that you can build that margin of safety, the more that you are insulated from the risk of uh, misfortune. And then the other side is exposing yourself to the upside of good fortune, of good uh, of good luck. And I think that's mostly about like trying to place asymmetric bets or putting yourself in an opportunity where you create a product that can scale. So for example, with your coffee product, um, you could just have a local coffee shop where you serve that, but that doesn't scale that well. Um, And so instead, it's available through the power of the internet and the magic of distribution all around the world. And so you really, same product, but by the format that you chose, uh, you exposed yourself to the luck of that taking off and people talking about it and so on. Um, So- yeah, there are there are strategies you can use for both uh, to insulate yourself or to uh, expose yourself to the upside. But ultimately, of course, nobody has control over what particular event happens and how luck shows I, up. I,
1: I definitely recognize my incredible good fortune in in the success I've had. And and it's been a huge amount of uh, in retrospect, right decisions uh, and good habits uh, and uh I, what i what I wouldn't want to do though is have someone who made equally good decisions with equally bad information uh, and developed good habits and didn't have the outcome they wanted to think oh i I built the wrong system sometimes shit happens right and i I just I mm-hmm. know there's people listening to this who have been struggling for you know decades and and are like, ah, and you know what you probably have some bad habits in there. And they may be the major contributing factor, and you don't know it because we're mostly blind to our habits almost by definition if if you read atomic habits it's it's pretty clear that's you know habits are the things you do automatically right How do people right. know like like how would you measure whether you had in fact you, you talk about something called the quality of our habits. How do you know if I have quality habits like what's the measure
0: mm. first of all, just like putting a bow on this whole conversation about luck and randomness and so on um you can certainly make the right choice and have the wrong outcome happen. Like I think, so I, I for many years had a career through college playing baseball and, um, you know, like baseball, is still a round ball and around bat. Like you, <laughs> you can make the, you know, you can make the right choice, especially as a coach, you can choose to, you can play the numbers, but the ball just bounces the wrong way. Yeah. And that kind of thing can happen in life a lot. But I think that there are some things that are useful to believe, even if they aren't strictly mathematically true. So for example, it is probably mathematically true that almost certainly that luck and uncertainty and randomness are playing a role in whatever outcomes you have in pretty much any domain in life mm-hmm. but it's probably still useful to ask yourself the question like i like this question how did i collaborate in my own defeat um
1: or, <laughs> it's a powerful question
0: right and so like Even it's not saying it's 50 50. It's not saying it's your fault. You maybe it was like 98 percent luck and you only brought two percent, which happened to be your attitude on that given day. Mm -hmm. But even if your attitude was positive, maybe the outcome wouldn't have changed. But in every interaction we have in life, we bring something into that moment. And so I think that question of how did I collaborate in my own defeat? How did I collaborate in my own success? Um, How did I collaborate in this conversation or situation? Um, What it does is even if it's not strictly mathematically true, that uh, it's all about your habits or it's all about luck is within my control. And what can I uh, impact in this situation? And I think that's probably helpful. Your question about how to measure the quality of a habit. That's an interesting one um, for a couple of reasons. One, you can sort of imagine any behavior as producing multiple outcomes across time. So uh, you could broadly speaking, oh, yeah. you could put this into two buckets, say the immediate outcome and the ultimate outcome. Well, with people often say like, well, if a bad habit's bad for me, like, why would I do it? Um, or, or how do we even some people also say this? How do we even define what a good and a bad habit is? How do we define what quality uh, to assign to a habit? And I think the way that I distinguish it is the reason we do bad habits is because the immediate outcome is often favorable. Like the immediate outcome of eating a donut is great. It's sweet, it's sugary. It's tasty. It's enjoyable. It's only the ultimate outcome, if you continue to eat donuts, that is unfavorable. Similar with um, smoking a cigarette. The immediate outcome of smoking a cigarette might be that you get to socialize with friends outside of the office, or you get to reduce a little bit of stress, or um, you curb your nicotine craving. It's only the ultimate outcome, two or five or ten years down the line, that is unfavorable. With good habits, it's often the reverse, um, especially in the beginning. Right. The immediate outcome of going to the gym is kind of sore the first workout like your body looks the same in the mirror you don't have really <laughs> anything significant to show for it it's only if you show up two or five or ten years later that you get this outcome that you want and so there's sort of this like valley of death in the beginning when you're building any habit that you need some kind of external validation or some way to show up now once a habit has been built and it starts to become part of your identity then actually you can like i just went to the gym a couple hours ago before we did this call And uh, that was actually quite enjoyable for me. My body, again, does not look really different in the mirror. Scale has not really changed. But I enjoy it because going to the gym is now part of who I am. I get to kind of reinforce being the person I want to be. So I do get some immediate satisfaction now. But I don't think that usually shows up for people when they first start to build a habit. So that's how I would kind of define the quality of habits, how they differ. I would usually define it by the ultimate outcome, not the immediate outcome.
1: Now, when, when you're deciding on a habit, there's some risk here, and, and I'm going to tell a, a personal sure. story, actually related to what you just said, uh, that you made me think about. When I weighed 300 pounds, and I'd, I'd had uh, two knee surgeries before I was 23, and I like, all right, I'm eating my low fat diet and you know doing my best, and I said I don't ever want to have another knee surgery. That was so painful to get a screw in my bone. Like I'm done, and it is my top priority. So I said, here's my habit: I work out 90 minutes a day no matter what, six days a week. I don't care if I'm sick, I don't care if I slept for two hours, I'm going to the damn gym. And I did this for 18 months straight. So definitely enough to become a habit. People thought I was nuts, like, like seriously Dave, like you have a sinus mm. infection, like I don't care. I'm going to the gym, I'm not going to have another knee surgery. Now At the end of 18 months, I still weighed 300 pounds, I could max out all the machines, and I said, all right, I have these huge quads, I'm, I'm good. And I went and I played laser tag. Mm. High-risk sport, right? So I kneel down I twist and I blow my ACL the first time I did any sort of non gym non PT activity (laughs) And I'm like all those hours all that sweat and I'm still fat and I still had to have another knee surgery and like That's an example of a well-intended habit Mm. that probably didn't work. And a lot of what I do with Bulletproof is like, hey, here's the system upon which you are designing your habits. If you know more about how it works, you will make better decisions and design better habits. But I read Atomic Habits and it's so abundantly clear if you make high quality habits and and the effective ones that you will get results and it's less painful and it's less work to do it. Because like you said, you built in your identity, I built in my identity, I go to the damn gym, right? But when the results didn't hit, Um, I had like a crisis of conscience, and it's one of the things that motivated me to start Bulletproof years later. Uh, So, the question here is, at what point do you know that your new habit, like, oh say veganism or something, doesn't work? How do you know when it's time to reevaluate a habit that you think is working, that that you're bought into emotionally and and psychologically
0: and socially? My broadly speaking answer is we need to close the feedback loop. And the only way you can close the feedback loop is to choose the right form of measurement. So in the case of your first example, um, the measure was, am I going to the gym or not? That was how you were measuring is the habit of success. Yeah. And it was like, I will always go. And as soon, as long as I show up, I know that's a success. But in order to know if a habit is serving you in the way that you want it to, and again, this entirely depends on what am I optimizing for? Um, it okay, sounds right. like in that case, what you were optimizing for is knee health and weight loss. You wanted to not be 300 yep. pounds. You wanted to not blow your knee out. And so, actually, maybe the signal of progress, the measurement that we needed to look at was not am I showing up at the gym, but is my knee getting healthier? Are the loads or forces on my <laughs> knee reducing? Yeah. Is the scale moving down? And this is actually like a really important question to ask yourself. I think the first question is what am I optimizing for? You, you need to be clear about that because just because there are a lot of goals and um, outcomes and results in life that we inherit from the people around us. We, many people are chasing yeah. a borrowed goal. They, they look at what other people do or what society tells them to do and they pick that up. And so that first question is like, what am I optimizing for? What is genuinely important to me here? Um, not what, is, what does society tell me I should be doing about this problem? Once you've decided that, then the next question is, what is the best measurement to determine if I'm moving toward the thing I'm optimizing for? And the measurement really matters because uh, in some cases, the measurement can be, in many cases with habits in particular, the measurement is too slow uh, to get people to, you're not getting signals of progress consistently enough. And when signals of progress decline in frequency, motivation declines as well. What you find is that in many areas, if people are working very hard, uh, even if it's like a really challenging situation, if they're getting signals of progress, usually their motivation stays fairly high, uh, even if they're they're having to work hard, because it's like, well, I'm getting the results I'm looking for. And um, sometimes you need to come up with very creative ways to measure that, you know, like in your case, in this example, measuring how often you work out is often for many people a great measure. But in this particular case, yeah. it was not the right measurement. Um, I don't know if you need to you know, go to a biomechanics lab, measure the forces on the knee, whatever. We can come up with different scenarios, different alternatives. But um, what we were trying to optimize for did not, did not match the measurement. And the challenge of choosing the right measurement is kind of like twofold. One is you need it needs to tell us what we're trying to optimize for. The other is over time, we start to tie our identity to the measurement and this happens almost all the yeah. time, right? Like it was like, I will, I will not miss a workout. I will always show up. And so by doing that, then that started to become your measure of like self worth and then you blow the knee out and then actually you feel guilt and shame and feel bad about yourself. Cause you're like, man, I, I was being the person I thought I needed to be and it still didn't get me the thing I wanted. And I think that it's because there's a misalignment between what we genuinely wanted to optimize for and what we were actually measuring. Uh,
1: so the idea that we're gonna form a hypothesis that a certain habit is gonna create a certain outcome, and then we create the measures of the outcome, and then uh, see if when we engage the habit whether the outcome happens. And a, a micro example of this that uh, I'm I'm a huge fan of, uh, my wife, uh, Dr. Lana, uh, read Atomic Habits uh, and a couple other books, and was just examining her own set of habits, and she decided that when she was blending her Bulletproof in the morning, while she's sitting there with the blender running for 30 seconds, she was gonna do squats. Mm. So I, I, she won't let me post this on social media, but <laughs> it's like in the morning, she's sitting there like, you know, hand on the lid of the blender so it doesn't spray butter on the ceiling. And she's like doing squats. And I tell you, after three weeks of that, like her pants fit differently, mm. like it was very noticeable. So I, I gotta, you know, in, in part, uh, thank you James uh, for my wife's uh, <laughs> curves, because they're, uh, they they change. And, and when I asked her about it, she's like, I was gonna stand here for 30 seconds anyway, so I added this Mm. habit. And there's great value in that, not just for her or for me, but just in general. This idea that you can apply a habit on top of something you already do and sort of double down in X amount of time. Do you have any advice for people who might wanna find opportunities? Like what are the low-hanging fruits for, for areas where you can add a habit?
0: Yeah. So this concept, this idea that you're talking about, where you like layer a new habit on top of something you're already doing, I refer to as habit stacking. Uh, the original idea came from Stanford professor named B.J. Fogg, yep. and he he calls it anchoring because basically how he describes it is you're going to anchor this new habit on top of something you already do. So, the blender in the morning is a good example. Uh, you know, another one I often use, like say say you make a cup of coffee every morning. Uh, you could say when I'm brewing my cup of coffee, I will meditate for 30 seconds. Right. So you like insert that that meditation <laughs> yeah. habit into the um, the habit you already do. The key point here, though, and this is habit stacking, is actually um, if you look at it from like an academic lens, it's actually a specific version of what researchers call an implementation intention. And an implementation intention is just it's exactly what it says is your it's a sentence that you fill out. To, that states your intention to implement a particular behavior at a given time. So a common example, uh, exercise uh, studies, they have they have the, the cohorts fill out a sentence that says, I will exercise on this date, at this time, in this place. And just that sentence increases the odds that people actually fall through with the workout, usually two to three X more than people who don't fill it out. Uh, the same thing, there are hundreds of studies on implementation intentions. They've been used for... Uh, to increase the odds that you go to the polls and vote to increase the odds that you get your flu shot, that you, um, will, uh, exercise more that you recycle even to quit smoking. So all kinds of habits. And the point is just whether we're talking about filling out that sentence or coming up with a habit stack is that it makes it very specific when and where to take action. Okay. And a lot of people feel like what they lack is motivation, but what they really lack is clarity. You know, they have like this kind of vague notion of they'd like to change that will say things like um, this time it'll be different or I'll just work harder or I'm going to eat better. And like all those are fine, worthy causes, but they're very vague. And by having to specifically say, no, I go to the gym at 5 p.m. on Mondays or uh, 10 a.m. in my studio is where I do my journaling habit. Like by getting very specific about that, uh, the moment of action is less likely to pass you by. And so that I think is the real value of an implementation intention or a habit stack. And, um, you asked about the best place to insert. Uh, I have two answers. The first general one, this doesn't always work, but generally speaking earlier in the day is better. Um, particularly if you don't have kids, if you have like a four year old running around, they don't really care that (laughs) you're running a screw. They they, they don't care that you're trying to (laughs) meditate at 7am, right? They're just like running around (laughs) everywhere. But um, broadly speaking, for most people, the earlier in the day, the less likely it is that you're responding to everybody else's agenda and the more likely it is that you have control over that time. Everybody has the same 24 hours, but not every hour is under your control to the same degree. You know, like generally speaking, the hour from 6 uh, a.m. to 7 a.m. is probably more under your control than, say, the hour from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. when you're in the middle of the workday. So uh, broadly speaking earlier tends to be better. And then the, um, the second thing is that habits by definition are a behavior that gets tied to a particular context. So that can mean a lot of different things. Like for example, the habit of tying your shoe could just mean the context of, I have an untied shoe on my foot, but Mm -hmm. you could also say something like, you know, a lot of people, for example, say that you watch, um, Uh, what's an example say you say you watch tv okay you're watching netflix at 7 p.m and that's your kind of normal habit you get done with work you come home and then you watch television for an hour or two and you want to build uh you know a journaling habit or an exercise habit take whatever you want um and so you come home tonight and it's like 7 p.m and you sit down on the couch and you open up your journal to journal or you you know get ready to start doing push-ups on the, the living room floor. And even if you don't say it specifically or think it consciously, you're kind of non-consciously being pulled to picking up the remote and turning on Netflix. It's like you have a behavioral bias in that environment because that's what usually happens in your living room at 7 PM. And so my second suggestion is first do it earlier in the day. If you can second do it in a new context where you don't have a previous habit already tied to that environment. So, For example, you could leave work, go to a coffee shop you don't normally go to, and that space becomes the journaling coffee shop. And you walk in, you turn your phone off, the only thing that happens is you journal for 20 minutes there, and then you go home. And uh, because you don't have that same behavioral bias, because you don't have this uh, body of habits that you're trying to like turn the ship against, uh, it generally is easier to build a new habit in a new like a blank slate a new environment
1: I really like that idea of of just changing it or saying this is the habit associated with the physical space mm-hmm. That that's pretty important and in, in the broader context there you talk about uh, not really setting a goal uh, versus setting a system and it, I feel like there's value in setting a goal because otherwise you don't know what system to design um, do you ever work with people uh or, or what what is your set of advice for people around how to make your system match uh the the goals that you've set I I like I for context I remember I'm 16 I read Think and Grow Rich <laughs> so I you know I and I, it was pretty valuable I, I wrote the goal on my mirror and and all this kind of stuff uh and so I was thinking about it and then I was making decisions about it but I I'm sure I had really bad habits uh, along the way, because I never thought about the system. Um, talk to me about your view on the limitations of setting goals, but also when to do it in, in, in making a system. I, I think it's, most people are unclear on this. Yeah.
0: So I think the way that you phrased the question you know, 30 seconds ago or so, where you said, how do we get the system yeah. to match the goal? That That's really ultimately what we're going for here. So before I criticize goals too much, um, I should say, like, this is coming from someone who was very goal oriented for a long time. I would set goals for the grades I wanted to get in school, the weights I wanted to lift in the gym, how much revenue I wanted to earn in my business, like all kinds of stuff. And eventually what I realized is that sometimes I would achieve the goal and sometimes I wouldn't. So clearly setting the goal was not the thing that made the difference.
1: (laughs) That's so logical. What you realize
0: is this kind of thing (laughs) happens all the time. That That was just
1: so logical. Like, like, clearly that's not what they yeah. did but, but that's kind of mind blowing. Yeah.
0: Well, you see this in, in most domains, actually. So like, um, if, uh, you have a job opening and a hundred candidates apply for the job, presumably every candidate has the goal of getting the job, but only one does. Uh, if you have 30 teams that are in a sports league and they're all competing to win the championship, presumably every team has the goal of winning the championship. So the goal is perhaps necessary, but it is not sufficient for success. Um, A goal is useful. Like we asked that question earlier, what am I optimizing for? And that really what that's asking you is what is your goal, right? Like what what are you, what target are we trying to hit? And that I think is what goals are useful for. It's not that goals are useless. They're useful for clarity, for determining where you want to allocate your attention and effort. But the problem I think that arises is that we live in a very outcome driven society. We live in a society that's very results oriented. And so whether it's social media and seeing everybody's highlights and results on there or the news, nothing becomes a news story until it is a result. You you only hear about the Broadway show. Once it becomes a hit, you hear about the book. Once it hits the bestsellers list, um, you're never going to see like a news story that is like, um, man eats chicken and salad for lunch today. <laughs> it's only going to be a news story like after man loses 100 pounds. Right. Right. Like it's once you get to the result, then it becomes newsworthy. And I think because we see results so pervasively throughout society and so often in our daily lives, we tend to overvalue the result and undervalue the process. We tend to overvalue the goal of, oh, I want to lose 100 pounds. I want to double my income. I want to get a million followers. And um certainly, The world is very results oriented, and this is one of the things that makes this like tricky and I think an easy pitfall results do matter. But if you make it about the goal, you might win one time. If you make it about the system, you can win again and again. And so goals are for people who are maybe more immediate or short term focused. I have a goal of running the marathon. Okay, great. That's only about the marathon. But if you have a system that allows you to become a runner or become an elite runner, well, then suddenly we can start winning, talking about winning multiple races and showing up again and again. And so it, again, it's the shift from the outcome-based focus to a more habit-based focus. And that I think is how I would define the difference between the two. The goal is your desired outcome. The system is the collection of daily habits that will get you there. And ultimately, as you just referenced in your question, we, what we want is for the two to be aligned. And, um, the insight that I had when I realized that setting these goals for myself was not necessarily leading to a result was that you do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. It doesn't, you can have great ambitious, incredible goals for yourself and that can be very valuable. But how far you go along that path, how far you rise is determined by the collection of habits, the system that you follow. And so that's kind of how I think about that distinction. I love that.
1: Now, I believe that that emergent behaviors of systems uh, of micro decisions actually create almost all outcomes in our lives that that we're unaware of 99% of them. So that there's this uh, tiny little operating system running inside each cell, making little tiny decisions, quadrillions of times a second, and that that's why you eat the bagel. (laughs) And, you know, that's why you do all the things that you didn't want to do. And that habits are a way of interrupting that evolved system that's been evolving for billions of years in life. And and that when you have a habit, uh, you you sort of take yourself out of the decision loop so you don't have to decide and it's just what you do. You basically put those little decisions on autopilot. Does that line of thinking about emergent behaviors from decision making line up with your philosophy of atomic habits or is there some difference there?
0: We are building habits all the time throughout life. You, even if you, if you never read Atomic Habits, if you never think about how to structure a habit, if you never sit down and read an article on it, you're going to build tons of habits anyway. And the reason that that is true, I think there is like there's sort of this evolved uh, system going on. Habits allow you to solve the problems of life with less energy and effort than you needed previously. So, you know, the first time that you put a shoe on, it was untied. That in a small sense, that's a problem that needs to be solved. And at first your parent or an adult teaches you how to tie the shoestring and do it well. And then after you do a hundred or 500 or a thousand times, you can tie your shoes while you're having a conversation or thinking about your to-do list for the day or whatever. And so you can solve that problem with less energy, effort, attention than needed before. And this is the benefit that habits provide. We use them all the time so that we can kind of solve all these little problems we're facing And then allocate our conscious attention to whatever the task at hand is and the organism that can solve more problems on autopilot is better suited to handle more problems. And so if you can handle more problems, you have a greater likelihood of survival. You can handle some on autopilot. You can think about some consciously. And so, uh, gradually over the long arc of evolution, we have moved more and more toward, uh, automating whatever behaviors we can. And so, Habits serve a very central role in our survival, just in our, honestly, in our day-to-day life, day-to-day functioning. We don't think about it. They're non-conscious most of the time. Um, And depending on how you measure it, depending on what study you look at, most researchers think automatic behaviors like that account for about 40 to 50% of our daily actions. But I think the true influence of your habits is even greater because those automatic actions often determine what you spend the next chunk of conscious time doing. So, for example, you might stand in line for, uh, you know, checking out or something and you're staying there for 10 seconds, then you automatically, habitually pull your phone out to check it. Well, the next 10 minutes, you might be playing a video game or answering email or checking social media or reading an article. You might be consciously thinking about how to respond to that email and so on. But the hab- habitual action of pulling the phone out of your pocket actually determined like the menu that you're looking at of, of yeah. possible choices of what to do. And so that one action was automatic and non-conscious, but it determined what the next chunk of conscious time looked like. And so for that reason, I, I don't know what we want to put the number at 70 percent, 80 percent, 90 percent. Your even your conscious behaviors are uh, heavily influenced by the non-conscious habits that follow or precede them. Um, and so. Yeah, in that way I think habits play a very important role. And uh and you're right, they are this kind of uh evolved behavior that dramatically influences our day-to-day lives.
1: And there there are habits like walking into a room and checking for exits and looking for threats. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> um I've been to urban escape and evasion training uh after one of Neil Strauss's uh books called Emergency many, you know, many years ago, I I did that. And the guys there, they're like, this is a habit you must have. You have to have situational awareness at all times. Mm. And I'm like, actually, I think I don't want to develop that habit because the cognitive load compared to other things I do isn't (laughs) worth it. Right. And I just want situational awareness when it's a threatening situation. The rest of the time, like, I'm not, I'm not going to worry about it. Yeah. Like the the, the choice was to not worry. But then I did a, a psychological study looking at. Um, your ability to recognize uh, unhappy or angry faces and happy faces. Mm. And I could correctly identify them most of the time, but I was four times faster at identifying the angry faces. So my body has a habit I have no conscious awareness of of recognizing angry people before happy people. What the F, right? So (laughs) is that a habit? Or is that so, an unconscious behavior?
0: Yeah, I would define that. And I, I don't know exactly the study or exactly how it was defined. But I, th- what you're describing to me, I would define that as an instinct rather than a habit. And the way that I would determine the difference is instincts are inherited, habits are learned. So if I throw a ball at your face, you duck out of the way or your hand goes up to deflect it. That's an instinct. Um, you didn't like learn that through repetition or something. Um, but Tying your shoes or brushing your teeth or unplugging the toaster after each use like that's a more careful learned behavior
1: So I'm two or three standard deviations away from normal on that
0: <laughs> so uh, I did learn it. Uh, for, for the speed with which you can identify an angry face. Is that yeah. what you mean? Uh-huh. Yeah, so it's a learned that's behavior right, so it makes sense to me that you would be able to uh, to identify a negative uh, reaction faster than a positive oh, one. Everybody right?
1: can. I'm just. I have superpowers at that. Yeah,
0: but you should can just do it much faster.
1: And that's probably because I was bullied. Uh, to be perfectly honest, so I learned it mm. when someone punched me in the face who looked angry a few times. Right, mm. like that's the the most
0: likely reason for it. Yeah, and that's so fascinating. You're like I, on high alert for anger. Right,
1: and and we can measure all sorts of outcomes on a you know, parasympathetic versus sympathetic dominance, and I measure all that stuff, and I've been able to hack a lot of it, but. Even the habit of walking into a room and looking for, you know, who's most likely to take me out, I don't have that anymore. But there might have been a time, you know, as a as a you know, very young man or an older teen where, you know, you walk in, like always be prepared because you know someone might want to do something bad. Um, I feel like ultimately I had a habit of looking for destruction. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so changing that is like some habits are harder to change than others, but it's also possible to make a habit of um, like what Mr. Rogers um talked about. And his mom would show him when he was a kid, um and and you'd see like a fire or a war scene on new on the news. And you know, he's a little little boy. And his mom would just say, Oh, anytime you see a disaster or something bad happening like that, here's what to do. Look for the helpers. Like so she ingrained a habit in him was oh, Notice that there's always someone rushing to help when bad stuff happens. And mm. so that was a habit that like became a part of who he was I feel like there's a way to go in and and change some of what we think are unconscious habits to become more conscious habits And what I want from you as an expert in habits What are the habits I could do that would make it easier to reprogram the tough stuff? If if I'm just putting you on the spot is if, if you were to solve that problem anything come to mind
0: I, so I like to divide habits in two categories. We got habits of action. These are the things most of the yeah. time you talk about. Build a put, you know, do one push up, write one sentence, meditate for one minute, whatever. Uh, and then we have habits of thought, and that's kind of what you're talking about yeah. here with the Mister yeah. Rogers idea, right? Look for the helpers. And I think with habits of thought, they happen so quickly. There's yeah. like an infinitesimally small space between the uh, prompt, the cue, the the situation and your response, uh, what exactly you you think that means. And in between those two, in between stimulus and response, we have, in my model at least, we have what I call craving or prediction. You need to make a different prediction about what that means. So most people watch a war scene and they predict the world is going down the tubes, this is terrible, darkness, negativity, et cetera. Mr. Rogers sees that same scene and he predicts where are the helpers. I know they're there, I need to look for them. And so essentially what we're trying to do is to learn how to tell a different story about the same experience, how to have a different internal narrative about the same thing that's happening. Sometimes this happens with um, an epiphany. And I would almost describe his mom telling him that. Now, I don't know how often she told him or how how repetitive it it's was. It's just a
1: story he repeated. It could yeah, just yeah, be made sure. Of marketing problem. So, maybe, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe
0: she told him a bunch over and over. Yeah. But it's possible that maybe she just told him one time and he had a little bit of an epiphany and it, it stuck with him. So sometimes it can happen through a very powerful story or conversation. Um, another yeah. example I have of this famous executive named John Malone ran a CEO of a cable company. He's been a very successful mm-hmm. entrepreneur. And, uh, early in his career, he focused heavily on cost cutting and early on, he took over this cable news station in Buffalo, New York. And, uh, they told him on a, one of his first days, Hey, we, we need to repaint the building. Uh, we, we have to repaint the building. He said, okay, only paint in the side that faces the street. <laughs> and that story became like, um, it became a thing that, uh, perpetuated throughout the entire company as he rose the ranks over the next 20 or 30 years. It was like, how much do we care about cost cutting? We care about it so much that we only paint one side of the building. Um, And so having something like that can having a good story can perpetuate uh, the habits of thought that you have. So in that case, in this in the case of this company, the example of this company, every time we're thinking about budget constraints, every time we're thinking about do we buy this or not, that story can arise. That internal story, that example can be used. So I think having a powerful story, a powerful narrative that you can revisit again and again, that's one way to do it. Having this epiphany is another way to do it. But epiphanies are rare, um, and they're hard to rely upon. And so I think another way that you can do this is with what I would call like a, a mindset reframe, for example. So here are a couple different examples of it, um, You could say, all right, you know, I'm going through my normal day. Okay, I have to wake up at seven. I have to take my kids to school. Um, I got to finish this report for, uh, for work and then I have to work out and then I have to drive my kid to practice. Or you could say, I get to wake up at seven. I get to take my kids to school. I get to finish this report. I get to work out and I get to take my kids to practice. And the difference between I have to and I get to is only one word. But it's kind of like a world apart in the sense of how you like, view the responsibilities and uh, obligations throughout your day. One way views everything you face as an obligation, I have to do this. And the other way every, you view everything as an opportunity, I get to do this. So that's one example of a mindset reframe. Another example, um, I was researching the book and I came across this person who was struggling to build a running habit. And whenever they thought about running, it always felt like a hassle felt like something. Oh God, I have to like get up and go run. Like maybe it's raining. And it's just kind of like, it's a lot of work. And so instead they started to say, well, instead of telling myself I need to go run, they would tell, they would view running mindset reframe as an antidepressant. And so they would tell themselves each morning, I get to take my antidepressant now. And just that little mindset reframe allowed them to look at running in a much more positive, productive way. Third and final example here. Um, A lot of people get nerves and they have to present to a big group or present a report or project at work or whatever. And so you could interpret your nerves as I am anxious. I am nervous. This is bad. Like I'm, you know, my palms are sweating, whatever. Or you could say, um, my heart rate is accelerating and I'm getting excited because I know this is important to me. And that's a sign that I'm actually, I'm like wired and I'm ready to go. I'm like energetic and feeling good about this opportunity. And it's the same feeling, but you just give yourself a different way to interpret it. And I think in all of these examples, what we're trying to do is to find a way to tell a different internal story when those habits of thoughts or uh, habits of thought arise so that you can interpret or make a different prediction uh, about what the experiences in your life mean.
1: That's really helpful advice uh, for, for people. One of the things I hear, and you must hear a lot uh, when people are saying, all right, you know, I, I wanted to do... Uh, the meditation in the morning and you know how Elrod's been on the show with you know, the the morning miracle and uh, you know a collection of just just really good people talking about all these good things you could do uh, but a lot of people say I I lack self-control. Mm. And you write in Atomic Habits very specifically about what self-control is and how it ties to habits. Can you share that knowledge uh, with me and with our listeners?
0: So I have a chapter called the secret to self-control. And, uh, the standard narrative around habits and behavior change is, well, maybe if you really wanted it, then you would do it. Maybe if I had more discipline or willpower or grit, you know, perseverance, then I would stick with it. And certainly grit and willpower and persistence are very important qualities in life. But one of the lessons, uh, there's an interesting body of, of self-control and willpower research. And one of the lessons from it is that, um, the people who exhibit high self-control and the people who exhibit low self-control actually aren't that different. Uh, The primary difference is that the people who exhibit high self-control are tempted less frequently. And so it is an important quality in life to have persistence and grit and self-control. But the most effective way to increase that ability is to design an environment where you are less tempted um, to practice what I call environment design. So this can be simple things like, basically it comes down to two things. You want to make the distractions less obvious and you want to increase friction of the negative tasks. And then the inverse is also true for good habits. You want to make the cues of your good habits more obvious and you want to reduce friction, make it the path of least resistance. And if you live and work in an environment where the good habit is the path of least resistance and the most obvious choice, well, suddenly sticking to good habits becomes a much easier thing to do.
1: Yeah. What's the role of a, of a coach, a friend, a spouse uh, a partner of some sort in helping to create extra friction, uh, when you're, uh, when you're doing this.
0: Yeah. So it can, you can have positive peer pressure or negative peer pressure, right? And this is something that, so I, I have a chapter in the book on uh social environment. I think it's how your friends and family influence your habits. And so I knew it was important, right? Like I, I wrote a yeah. whole chapter on it, but this is a, a topic that since the book has come out, I think is even more important than I realized, which is, the influence of the social environment on your habits. Um, From a high level, you can think about yourself as being a member of multiple tribes. Some of the tribes are big, like what it means to be American, or what it means to be Canadian, or uh, some of the tribes are small, like what it means to be a member of your local CrossFit gym, or a neighbor on your street, or a volunteer at the elementary school. And all of those tribes, large and small, have a set of shared behaviors or common expectations, what we sometimes call social norms for how to act. So take like your neighborhood, that little tribe. Well, why do we like mow our lawns and trim our hedges and care about the flower beds? Well, to a certain degree, it looks nice and it feels good to have a clean yard, but largely it feels good to have a clean yard because you don't want to be the neighbor who's judged by everybody else in the neighborhood. And so it's actually that social expectation of how to act that initiates and sustains the habit of mowing your lawn every week for, you know, 25 years or however long you live there. And, uh, you know, you go to a job interview and you wear a suit and tie or a dress or something nice. Well, there's no reason you have to do that. Like you could wear a bathing suit, but that would be weird because it would violate the social norms of the situation. And so the expectations of the other people who are in the tribes that you belong to are probably one of the strongest long-term factors for either getting a habit to stick or feeling like you're fighting an uphill battle and running against friction. And so I think the key takeaway here, the, the summary, the, the takeaway point that I always give for social norms and uh, for that influence on your habits is you want to join a group where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Because if it's normal in that group, then actually it's going to become very attractive for you to stick with it because it's going every time you do the habit, it's going to be a signal that you belong, that you get it. You know, if you are friends with half a dozen jazz musicians, well, suddenly practicing music six nights a week sounds like a pretty normal habit because everybody else around you is doing it, too. And it's like a sign of, hey, I'm in the friend group. I get it. Whereas meanwhile, if you're in a a family that nobody plays a musical instrument and you want to practice, then you're just the kid who's like making noise in their room or you're, you know, you're running against the grain of the, the habits of the group. And that I think is kind of the takeaway here. When the habits match the social norms of the tribe, it's they're very attractive to stick with because they help you belong. And when the habits go against the grain of the social norms of that group, they're very unattractive to stick with because they make you stand out. You don't fit in anymore. And most people, if they have to choose between would I rather have the habits that I want, but I have to be alone or I have to be ostracized from the group, or would I rather have a set of habits that I don't really love, but I get to belong? Most people would rather be wrong and with the crowd than right and by themselves. Most people would rather belong than be lonely. And <laughs> I just, in that I, sense, it requires a lot of courage to branch out right? and run yeah. against the grain of the social norm It requires courage in two ways. Either you have to ignore the norms of the group that you're in, which I don't really think is a good long-term strategy, because if you want to belong with those people, eventually I think belonging overpowers the desire to belong overpowers the desire to improve in the long run, if you want to fit in, or you need to have the courage to find a new group, to join a new tribe, to show up at the gym on day one, or to go to the yoga studio, even though you've never been there before or to branch out and go to a conference and say hello to people who are in the industry you wanna be in even though you're not there yet. So I think it requires a certain amount of bravery to either run against the grain of the social norm or to find a new group.
1: That's why I I created biohacking and and made it a community and a movement why I didn't trademark the name biohacking, uh, which I I could have. I'm like, no, this needs to be a thing, like a, a community. And that's why I started a conference, and there's a few thousand people a year who go to it, because I wanted the stuff that I do. Yeah, I wear my colored glasses before I go to bed, because my sleep quality is measurably higher. It's a habit that actually changed my life. But if I'm the only guy wearing red glasses at at a bar, uh, then I'm probably either a rock star or a goofball. Uh, And I'm I'm okay with either one, Uh, but that's also because I, you know. I, I've just developed that as a habit of giving less craps about whether people like what I'm doing, as long as it works for me.
0: That is a good example, though. You know, yeah. in your tribe, that's a very normal behavior to do. It's a very understandable one, yeah. and in the wider world, it doesn't fit in at all. And so, it's the the tribe that you are yeah. in determines what habits seem normal and attractive, and you know, and uh, standard.
1: It's interesting when you look at things like anti aging. You know if you're in a group of older people who are all committed to getting younger, it's shocking how it'll be completely something that happens. And if you're in a community of people who are committed to you know sitting in rocking chairs, uh, it, it the outcomes are very predictable, but it's an environmental variable that drives the habits. And I mean I've seen such profound results. That was why my my latest book is about that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's
0: massive you want to join a group that has the desired habits that you okay. that you want, you know You can rise together and if you go against the grain of that man It's hard to fight that in the long run You might be able to overpower your environment in the short run, but it's really hard to overpower in the long run
1: There's even studies about the long-term success of your relationship um, that I referenced in uh, in game changers um, the book before this And it turns out that one of the things that is that is the primary determinant of whether your relationship will be successful is whether you have the support of your community. So, you know, if you're in a gay relationship and you're in a community of people who are like, "You can't do that. You're bad." Like, even if you really love the person you're with, you're not going to have the same chances of success as if you're in a community that says, "You know, support the person you're with and you support your relationship." So, here's a question for you, though. Is it a decision to join a community of people who will be supportive of what you want to be? Or is it a habit to join communities?
0: I think it's a decision to join, it's a habit to remain. Uh, okay. to To practice the norms of that group, right? Like, um it's a decision to go to it, to join a new gym and go there. It's a habit to show up and do the the workouts with the group uh, each day or each week. It's a habit to go to the, you know, social hours continually, whatever, you know, like it's a, it's a decision to join. It's a habit to remain. I think a powerful thing too, about both decisions and habits, they both compound, you know, your your habits compound over time as they start to layer on top of each other and, um, you know, and increase, uh, increase over time. But your decisions, if you imagine your life as like a string of decisions, those decisions can compound for you or against you too. You know, like the benefit of making a single good choice is is fine, but the benefit of making a string of good choices can be significantly better. Um, And so you're really trying to like string those two together.
1: James, one of the things that you write about in Atomic Habits that is right up my alley is dopamine, the neurotransmitter. Can you tell me your take on dopamine and habits and what you share in the book?
0: So uh, this is something that, you know, dopamine gets brought up a lot with habits. um, And I do think that there is a key insight about it that is relevant to the discussion. I'll come back to that in just a second. But before I get to that, I want to add this caveat or I think big picture view, which is, um, Dopamine is just one of many neurochemicals that are involved in the process of performing a habit. It often gets most of the real estate or most of the discussion for whatever reason. I don't know why it's become the most popular one. Um, but there are many things involved, you know, like if you, um, (laughs) imagine if you had like an apple on a table and we had a separate conversation about like picking that apple up and doing like a bicep curl with it. And then you would say, well, actually, like this region of the brain is involved in, you know, like doing this. And th- these are the exact pathways that are followed in order to pick the apple up and curl it. But you can't actually do any of that unless your muscles are working well in your hand. And like you have a, a strong enough grip to do it. And what if your bicep muscles atrophied and you couldn't actually raise your forearm and so on? So like the point I'm getting at here is the body is a complex system. There are many things that are going on to attribute habits singularly to dopamine, I think, is a mistake. Um, However, there is one very key insight that I think dopamine reveals or helps showcase. So I divide a habit into four steps. The first step is the cue, the, the thing that gets your attention. The second step is the craving, which is like the prediction that you make. And then the third step is the response, and then finally there's this reward. So I wanna focus on the first three. So let's say that you walk into a kitchen and you see a plate of cookies on the counter. Cue, visual cue, the cookie gets your attention. The next thing that happens is that you actually make a prediction in your mind about whether, oh, that cookie is tasty, sweet, sugary, enjoyable. I should walk over and get it. And it's actually the prediction that leads to the third stage of the response when you walk over and pick it up and take a bite. And this is true about pretty much any behavior that we have in life. We think that life is reactive in the sense that things happen and then I do them. But actually life is mostly predictive in the sense that things happen and then I predict what response would be favorable or what action I should take next. And the reason I'm bringing up dopamine here is that what scientists and researchers have found is that dopamine actually spikes before the action is taken, not after. The very first time you do it, so like the first time you take a bite of a pancake or the first time you, you taste what chocolate is, it's a surprise. And so there's no rise in dopamine before that. You take a bite, then boom, there's this big spike. Oh, wow, that tastes good. That's sweet, sugary, tasty, enjoyable. I should biologically mark this in my brain as something I should repeat again next time. But the second time, and continued, third, fourth, fifth, a thousandth as you build these habits, the next time it's when you see the chocolate or see the pancake uh, or some of the studies that were done, gamblers get a spike of uh, dopamine when they see dice, not after they roll them. Cocaine addicts get a spike of dopamine when they see the powder, not after they take a hit. And so it's actually the prediction that is leading to their, the reason I bring this up is my model, my four step model Mm -hmm. differs from many other, uh, psychology or many other habit models in the one sense that, uh, most of them have three steps. And I inserted this second stage of craving and prediction. And one of the reasons I did that is because of the lessons of these, um, studies that show that there is actually a different brain state going on here. There's this mm. rise of dopamine that signals there's a prediction going on. And the higher the spike of dopamine, the greater the craving to perform the behavior. And interestingly, pretty much all of the most habit-forming actions, taking meth, taking coke, playing video games, um, drug addiction. <laughs> yes, watching porn, <laughs> yeah. drug addictions, um. Any most, almost all those addictive behaviors lead to some of the highest spikes in dopamine possible. I had a graph for this. I decided not to put it in the finished uh, version of the book, but it's crazy to see the amount of spike that happens for watching porn or playing video games or taking meth compared to say, taking a bite of bread, um, which there is at pretty much any behavior at pretty much any action, even the smallest thing, like choosing to pick up a piece of toast there's some low level spike of dopamine there in the sense that you have some motivation to do that. You have some prediction. Oh, okay. Hey, picking up the toast will be tasty for me. But the level of desire, the level of craving and prediction associated with that habit is much lower. And so, um, the insight here is that behavior is predictive, not reactive. And there is some motivational force, which we can at least partially track through the dopamine levels in the brain that is occurring before each action. And the higher that spike is, the greater the motivation you feel and the more likely you are to take the response.
1: I I love that perspective on dopamine. Are you a believer in dopamine resistance? Have you looked into that?
0: Yeah, I haven't looked into it too much. Are you referencing like there's all this new stuff and you know uh, San Francisco talking about like taking a dopamine fast or um, you know like need to like reset? Your...
1: Oh no, that dopamine fasting is. I, I think there's a lot of marketing yeah.
0: around around that, but but there there is real research that
1: says when you get incredibly high dopamine sti- spikes, especially around porn and things like that, that it probably desensitizes your dopamine receptors and it makes a behavior more uh, more
0: addictive. Yes, I think that's true from what I've seen. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that a dopamine fast is anything more than vipassana meditation or any other quiet contemplative practice, but uh, good good hack on yeah. branding there, guys. Um <laughs> uh, but I I'm willing to be proven wrong if I see some kind of reason for it. Uh but I I'm just I'm thinking in, in terms of habit formation, maybe the people who are best at making habits and sticking to them are the ones who are yeah more sensitized to dopamine and some of that is actually genetic.
0: Yeah, so there are a lot of yeah. interesting things to uncover here. I think I have one chapter in the book on um uh the influence of genes and personality yeah. on habits and behavior. And I think a lot of the science is kind of on the cusp, it's on the edge right now where we we're we're getting some like very interesting insights. We don't quite know everything. Like there's a lot to still be discovered. Um but specifically with dopamine, so Dopamine uh, actually it often declines with age, and so the, yep. the amount of dopamine that you have when you're 40 or when you're 60 is not nearly what you have when you're 25. And uh, many addicts will actually age themselves out of addiction. Um, so they, they'll be addicts in their 20s and 30s, and then as they get into their 40s and 50s, they just don't experience the wave of desire as much as they did before. And, uh, so it's easier for them to curtail or even discard those behaviors entirely as they continue to age and their dopamine, natural dopamine levels drop. And, um, you know, there are a lot of touch points here. Parkinson's is another, you know, very like, um, uh, dopamine dependent disease. And so as you start to take, um, drugs to, uh, regulate your dopamine levels, If those if the drugs are out of whack, if the the dosage is incorrect, there are some very interesting stories. Radiolab has a fascinating episode with um, with a uh, uh, Parkinson's patient who basically their drugs turned them into a porn addict Um, by taking the the drugs. But at the wrong dosage dopamine levels were all out of whack. Suddenly they had these intense cravings and they spent all day looking at porn and like wrecked their career and home life and all types of things. So. Man. Um. There's a very fine line there uh, and it's 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 definitely clear that there's a strong link between habitual behavior and um, dopamine driving those actions.
1: Uh, the reason I wanted to have you on the show, you've got you know, 20 chapters in the books and you talk about genes, uh, which is important. In fact, there's a company called The DNA Company um, who will tell you what your dopamine genes are like and how those are likely to affect your behavior. Mm. And I was pretty astounded that they were pretty predictive for me. Uh, but I just I thought you you covered not just the hey, here's how to make a good habit which is really important but you went into um, you know all all of the things that I'm aware of but you put it all in one book uh, which is which is pretty cool including you know the genetics and the the biological side of it as well as best practices so it, it's a it's a body of work worth reading you can tell you put you know the three to five years into really pulling it together and uh, y- you can see a slap together book versus a uh, like this matters enough people are going to read this that I better get it right so I, I, you you nailed
0: it yeah thank you so much that means a lot I am um, my hope is that in the long run it can be the most comprehensive and practical yeah. book on the subject and I sort of view this as like in a weird way like my most polished first draft and then you know at some point 10 yeah. years from now or something I'll do an expanded and updated edition and and hopefully keep it on that that leading edge but thank you I'm you're, glad you're you're
1: welcome and and you know you're listening to the show look i recommend a good number of books on here the number of books that i go through and the number of things uh, that i have my team help me with it is an exceptionally large stack of literature that gets sent to me and that that what you just said there james around comprehensive and you know actionable or practical that's what makes a book great because there's lots of books that are comprehensive but it's like reading a medical textbook or it's it's like it's too yeah. It it's too out there. But I'm saying, what can you do now based on this new knowledge that now you can grasp? And that is a high bar and I, I think you you nailed it. And I, I just wanted to thank you for uh for your book there. And I, I've got one final question for you, which isn't the question longtime listeners are gonna expect, which is normally how long are you gonna live here? Um, but I wanna know what is the one bad habit you have that you have not yet broken? The hardest
0: Oh man, one. well I have a bunch. I mean, <laughs> I um I I say this uh in all sincerity, like My readers and I are peers. We're both going through it together. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're trying to figure it out. We're experimenting. You know, I'm learning this just as much as everybody else is. My publisher had a good line. She said, um, we write the books we need. And, you know, like I I, I wrote about it because I wanted to learn Mm -hmm. about it. And um, so I'm still going through it for sure. I'll give you uh, I'll give you one, though, that I struggled with a lot when I was writing the book, which is, I guess, for lack of a better term, a power down routine. So I have this cardinal rule where i won't cheat myself on sleep so i I try to get eight nine hours a night uh, especially if i'm training heavy in the gym and um so i also have this problem though which is i like the work that i do and i get this second wind sometimes around like nine or ten p.m i'm like oh just you know i'll check email or i'll um you know i'll work on this chapter for a little bit and all of a sudden you know nine p.m turns into one a.m and it's like okay well where do I, you know, where do I make the trade off here? And I always choose to get the sleep, which I'm glad that I do. Um, but you know, if I go to bed at one, that means I'm nine days and start until like nine or 10. Um, and so, uh, I would prefer to get up earlier. Um, but that's one that I still haven't quite kicked. And I think as one final kind of useful, maybe uh, exercise or point, I think you could do this, not just for what I'm struggling with, but also for pretty much any habit, which is walk back the behavioral chain of what leads to that. So mm-hmm. you might look at that. I might look at this and say, uh, well, I think the real problem is that I'm not sleeping. Uh, I'm not going to, bed. the problem is I'm going to bed at 1am. But then you are like, well, okay, why am I up at one? Well, actually I'm up at one cause I'm like staying up answering emails. Okay. Why am I answering emails? Well, I'm answering emails because I have a bad I do a bad job of shutting down at like six and I don't have enough of this automated and there's a bunch of emails to answer still. And so then you start to realize like, okay, maybe the real answer is we need a better system for processing email and I actually need a better habit of shutting down at six. I don't need a better power down habit. I need a better uh, end of workday habit. And walking back that behavioral chain to get to the root cause, I think can be a very useful way to try to solve some of those problems we all struggle with so much.
1: I really like that perspective. You look at the system and like, where's the system broken? Because it's probably not what you noticed. It's upstream. It's almost always upstream. Right. James, your website is jamesclear.com. The book is Atomic Habits. And you are one of the two men, the other guy you mentioned on the show, by the way, is BJ Fogg, um, whose books uh, influenced my wife's ass. So thank you, thank you very much for that. Uh, and if you're just catching this end of this interview, you think I'm crazy, I'm talking about her new habit of doing squats while she's blending her Bulletproof. Uh, and in all in all seriousness, she actually read your book and it was like, oh, I, I, I'm doing this. So thank, thank you and thanks for your work.
0: That's great, well tell her thank you and uh, I'm happy to help in whatever way I can. I'm glad that uh, you all found the book useful. So thanks for the opportunity.
1: If you liked today's episode, you know what to do. leave a review. Pick up a copy of the book. In fact, make it a habit of listening to the very highest ROI podcasts uh, in the universe. And I would like to say that Bulletproof Radio is there. And if it's not, do me a favor, leave me a review, send me a note on Instagram or something, tell me what you'd like to see. Because if it's not worth your time, I want you to not listen. And if it's worth your time, it's a good habit. Have an awesome day.